0: Well, amen. It is great to worship with you today. And whether you're here worshiping in the room or whether you're uh, watching from your couch at home or those of you who've been running laps and maybe are watching this a few days later, we just uh, thank you for joining us as our church family for those who are running the pig today. And speaking of running, we're in our last section of numbers where we're running laps. So they say this is the last week I'm allowed to use my whistle. If you remember where we've been in numbers... You're going to be able to stand before God one day and say, I studied the book of Numbers. It's a 1% club, by the way. It's not a lot of people have done that. And so we have been journeying through three different wildernesses. The first one is Sinai. So in Sinai, we learned that God uses certain experiences in our life to prepare us for promises he had for us in the future. Then we move from the wilderness of, of Sinai, what we call the preparation wilderness, into the wilderness of Paran. And that is the wilderness of testing. We learn that God says one more lap around the wilderness. He will put us in the exact same circumstances, sometimes having the exact same arguments with our spouses, the exact same challenges that we faced last year, five years, or ten years ago. And God keeps putting us in the same lap so that we will learn how to put confidence in Him, how to trust Him. And that took us from chapter 13 to chapter 19. Now, we're about to move into the wilderness of temptation in Moab, but we are in a section of, of the book of Numbers where we're traveling between the two. So right between chapter 19, which is Puran, and chapter 22, which we end up in Moab, we are transitioning. And so today you're going to notice that in the passage. It's got a little bit of the, the theme of Paran. One more lap around the wilderness, guys. You're not trusting me. And a little bit of what we're going to be discovering for the next six or seven weeks which is, what are our different unique temptations? And am I willing to trust what God says about my temptation or what I say about my temptation? Ah, it won't hurt me. It's not that big a deal. I'm sure I won't get addicted. Oh, I'm sure that I can change whenever I want. Or what God says, flee, get out of there, be careful. Will we trust what God says about temptation when we're in Moab or what we think is true about temptation? Now, to do that, we start off here in chapter 20. And the opening verse says, The children of Israel are on the move. The whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin. Zin. For the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. So we've been traveling and wandering. So on a map, if you were to look at where they've been... They're just on the way. If you look at kind of the greenish line, we're coming up here. We're making the circle here, now yellow. Here's the Zin desert or Zin wilderness. We're then going to make our way over here and eventually get to the section of Moab up here, which is where the story of Balaam we heard about last week begins to occur. So we're in this transition phase. So what does it look like to dwell in or be in the Zin desert or the Zin wilderness? Let me show you a picture of it. As a dry, dry place. And if you've ever metaphorically been in the wilderness of Zin, you know it feels tough. Tough terrain, tough circumstances, challenges before you, and seemingly a lack of resources. In fact, even the resources you do have, hey, I've got money, I've got power, I've got influence, but some of the tools that worked in Egypt man, they don't seem to work really really well here in this type of terrain, in this type of wilderness. And as they're taking one more lap around the wilderness of Zin, God is going to give a lesson, I think, for you and I when we find ourselves in dry, challenging, difficult places. See, those laps that we take, they can be time wasted or they can be a lesson learned. The times that God's putting you through the same circumstances, the same challenges over and over again. Is it going to be time wasted? Well, I'll just suck it up, be a stoic. I hope I eventually get through this. Or it will be lesson learned. God, what do you want me to learn during this time? Am I learning how to patiently wait on you in the wilderness of Moab? How to increase my confidence in you? Because what I think God wants for all of us is when we face the wilderness of Zin, we're able to say not, oh, jeez, Here we go again. God's got his whistle out. It's another time. Here we go again. But rather, here we grow again. I am going to learn how to have confidence in God. I'm going to learn deeper who I am, be made more into the image of Christ. Here we grow again. I may not like the wilderness, but I'm going to grow through the wilderness. So to do that, I want to teach you three runner's lessons. The lessons that a runner can know As you're running these different laps and making sure we're learning the lesson God has for us. Let's look at our first lesson together. The first lesson here really comes out of that first verse. Because immediately as they're transitioning from wilderness number two to wilderness number three, they face another challenging circumstance. So the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. And immediately we have tragedy strike. Miriam dies. Miriam dies. Moses' sister. And there's just, despite some of the difficulties they've had, despite some of the run ins we've read about already, they're losing and they've lost someone they care deeply for. Many of us have walked through the wilderness of Zen because someone we cared about died much earlier than we expected. The second thing we're faced is she's buried there, and now there was no water for the congregation. we've seen this before. This happened back in Exodus. This happened in a lack of food and they needed meat. All through the book of Numbers we've realized people have needs, a lack of supplies, and God said, hey, don't complain. Call out to me. I will provide for you. I will be there for you. But there's often a gap between what God says is going to happen and when it happens. So the question is, what do you and I do during the gap? When right now I need water, God says he's going to provide water, but I don't yet have water. What do you do during the gap? We see that they have a so. Oh, so what do they do? Between the gap of what God says and what God's going to provide, they immediately gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Mutiny! Time to kill Moses and Aaron for putting us in the circumstance. Time to get angry at God. Time to shake our fist at God. Time to say, Woe is me, poor me, I shouldn't have to put up with this. It's like, man, they haven't learned their lesson. But neither have I. I don't operate well in the gap. Yet most of the Christian life is the gap. The gap between what God says He will do and when He actually does it. How will you and I respond to the gap? If someone were to write your journal entry, so when you face difficult circumstances, you during that gap did what? Tried to lead a mutiny against God's leaders. What's your so? He's going to make the people take a lap because during the gap, they what? They trusted? That's what he wanted. They waited patiently? No. They surrendered to him? No. They said, hey, hey, let's grow through this. No. They have to run a lap because during the gap, they worry. They rebel. They take control. They don't give thanks. They complain. What is your so that happens during the gap? Do you thank God? Do you seek God? Do you demand your own way? Or get anxious? And the reason the stakes are so high is because we have heard this verse dozens of times through the book, and it's not just, oh, here we go again. It's when we choose to not learn the lesson during the gap that God has for us, it doesn't just affect us and our relationship with God, it affects all the people around us. The work God wants to do in us gets hindered, it gets halted, and sometimes even is destroyed. I'll give an example. A few years ago, I got a chance to learn how to, to uh, sail uh, a catamaran. So, I went down to Key West And we had a captain teaching uh, my buddy and I how to sail. So it was very, very fun. We're heading out about 100 miles offshore for a couple days. And on the way, we were going to get a chance to stop by this lighthouse that's way out in the middle of the ocean. Just, uh, you know, four or five miles out from Key West. And it's the actual place that Ernest Hemingway used to go out in his boat. He would sit in this little lighthouse. And he would actually write stories that have affected American literature, like The Old Man in the Sea, written in places like Key West at this lighthouse. Man, I was so excited. We got the sail, we got the pitch, we're heading that way, and I'm just looking. I want to see, maybe we can pull up alongside, climb up the ladder, and sit in the same place that Ernest Hemingway sat to write pieces of literature that inspired people and opened people's hearts. Well, as we're kind of heading out to somewhere near it's going to be, I'm watching the nautical charts. Uh, our captain says, oh, everyone, look to your port side. Whew. I'm like, starboard's right. I'm looking at the port side, yeah. He's like, there you go, Ernest Hemingway Lighthouse. And I look over, and I don't see anything like that. And as we get a little closer and a little closer, sure enough, here's what it looks like. I'm like, what happened? What happened? He said, well, many, many years after Ernest Hemingway, apparently many people made their way out here and many people on their way out here, as it's known in Key West, just smoked a lot of things out here. And apparently one of them, while smoking something out there, dropped one of their cigarettes or whatever cigarette it was and burned the lighthouse down. And I'm like... This beautiful piece of history and, and literature and architecture. And it's just gone like that. The name of the place in Numbers we're going to be at is called Meribah. We're going to find out. It's going to be known as the place that Moses made a decision so he can no longer go in the promised land. Meribah. It's the place that people contended with God and they burnt down many of the gifts he had for them, many of the promises he had for them. See, if we don't figure out how to operate in the gap, we're going to end up destroying some of the incredible works God wants to do in us. The artistry he wants to put into our heart, the inspiration he wants to put in us, the character he's forming in us. Let us figure out how to operate in the gap so that God can build a house in us, be our lighthouse, guide us and direct us, and not hurt our faith, our family and our future by burning down the very things that God's trying to give to us. So that's our first lesson. How do you operate in the gap? And when you don't, God will give you another lap. What's our second runner's lesson? The second runner's lesson starts in the next part of the passage. So so the people raise up against Moses and Aaron. They contended with Moses. And they say the same stuff they've always said. If only we had died with our brethren when they died before the Lord. Why have you brought, oh, I love this. He's talking to Moses now. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord? They're talking about themselves. We, the assembly of the Lord, look how important we are. Wow, how dare you bring the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness. We deserve better. The people of the Lord shouldn't be in these circumstances. That we and our animals should die here. They continue. Why have you made us come out of Egypt, that wonderful place, to this evil place? I mean, this, their distortion of what was true and what was good and what is evil and what is bad is all messed up here. Was not Israel a place of grain and figs and vines and pomegranates not here? Nor is there any water to drink. We're back to that gap. So while they are just raising their fists, screaming at God, accusing God of things, accusing the leaders of things, look what Moses and Aaron do. Now Moses and Aaron, facing a gap, God hasn't provided yet, we're in charge, they went immediately from the presence of the assembly of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And they fell on their faces. So they're going to go before the tabernacle of God, which we talked about in the first couple weeks, and they're going to fall on their faces before God, and the glory of the Lord appeared before them and said, God, we need your help. In the middle of the gap, we need your help. We don't know how to handle this. We're overwhelmed. Now, the words here uses the people contended from verse 3, and Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in verse 6 are really interesting because I think it shows our second runner's lesson. What do you do in the wilderness? What do you do when there's a gap? What do you do when there's something happening in your life that you don't like? Are we going to contend like the people? Are we going to fall on our faces like Moses and Aaron? And the Hebrew word here is really interesting that pulls up in both of these. The word for contended is to rib, it's to wrangle, it's to rebuke. How often do we rebuke God? As if, hey, God, I've run a lot of universes before. Maybe you haven't. Let me tell you how the timing should be. God, I've run a lot of universes in my day. Let me tell you how my circumstances should be going right now. We wrangle with God. We put our our face up with our stiff neck and we say, God, I know better than you how to run my life. Or the word for fell on their faces is vahapol. And it can actually go two different directions. It means you can literally fall on your face, which is probably what Moses and Aaron did. But it also means that you fall on the face of God, or you fall on God's face. God, I don't know how to face these circumstances, so I want to fall on your face so you can face them for me. See, one of the reasons God has us run laps is not just how we handle the gap, but it's also because when we have a circumstance we don't like, Instead of falling on God's face, we throw our complaints in God's face. How about you? Are you more like Moses and Aaron or more like the people? I wish I was more like Moses and Aaron, but I'm usually like the people. That's our second lesson. God says, run the lap because you throw complaints up in my face when you should throw your face down. And I tell you what's amazing is over and over through the book of Numbers, we have seen how the people rebel, the people complain, the people accuse. And Moses, just look up the phrase, fall on his face, fall on his face, fall on his face, fall on his face. It's all over the place Moses does it. And when he does, he comes back and he forgives Miriam for her racism, forgives Aaron for his insubordination, forgives the people When he falls on his face, he's able to forgive. He's able to see God better. He's able to have compassion toward his enemies. Just amazing what happens, how he's been growing as a person because of how he responds during these circumstances. I was reading a story about a month ago about the punch heard around the world. If you know the story, it's from the NBA in 1977, I think. But the punch heard around the world. The NBA was a, just a, a brawl of fighting in every game back in the 70s. But one of the significant moments that changed all that came in 77, 79, somewhere in there, in what's known as the punch herd around the world. Kermit Washington was getting into a fight right in the middle of the court. And as fists were being thrown, Rudy was not part of the fight. He ran to help. He's literally running down the court to help break things up and to stop it. Kermit turns. He thinks that Rudy's coming after him to attack him. So he reaches back, spins around, bam! And with the momentum of Rudy coming at him, and this fist coming at him hits him square in the face with this cracking sound that lays him on the ground. Another sound that just everybody stops. The medics run up to Rudy and they say he can taste bitterness in his mouth. Now, if you're a doctor or nurse, you may know it's rarely, really rare when this happens. He got hit so hard he could taste his own spinal fluid. He'll have five different surgeries. Fixing his entire face. And Kermit will go from being on the top of the food chain in the NBA. Popular, uh, powerful, sought-after endorsements. He will be cut from the team. He'll be suspended with the largest suspensions ever. He'll lose all his friends. He'll end up with a a lifestyle of really bad decisions coping with everything he lost. And they will interview Rudy several years later. And he will say, I forgave him. We rebuilt a relationship together. And I really have a lot of compassion for everything he's been through, he's been through, everything he's lost, and we reconciled in the end. And I thought, here's somebody who in the face of absolute adversity chose to forgive, chose to have a compassionate view toward their enemies in the midst of circumstances. Just like Moses and Aaron, just they're going to keep forgiving people and keep not downplaying what happened, but keep trying to find God's perspective on it. On the other hand, how often am I like Kermit where God is running toward me to help, to give guidance, to say, don't do this, don't go there, whoa, break it up. And while God's running at me to help, I think he's coming after me to hurt me. And I turn around and I try and clock God right in the face. By saying things like the Israelites did. Why? How dare you? I'd rather be dead. I can't believe that you would let me go through this. Are we going to realize God's running toward us to help us? Or are we going to assume God's our enemy? It's our second lesson. We move to the third. So our third runner's lesson comes in the next part of the passage. It's interesting because now we find ourselves back here at the the tabernacle. Because when Moses and Aaron decide to put their face down, they get into God's presence, which always occurred at the tabernacle. Now, Moses spoke, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. What rod? We'll come back to that. You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together, and I want you to do something. Now, there's a lot of famous staffs that Moses has, or rods. The first one you probably remember, burning bush. God says, take your staff, throw it on the ground, turns into a snake, right? Grab it by the tail. That was one of his rods or snakes. So some commentators think that's the rod, the the famous way God has been speaking in different ways. I don't think that's the rod here. They had to come to the tabernacle to get the rod. If you remember from many, many weeks ago, there was another group of people contending against Aaron as priest, And God had taken all the leaders and given them the rod, or their staff. If you remember, uh, Drew had this two-by-four, you know, really crummy two-by-four that had a staff growing out of it, right? It was that sermon, so if you didn't see it, you can go back and watch it. And so it was that rod that God said, hey, every one of the leaders, you think you're a better leader than what I've picked? Every leader had a rod, and God made a bud come out of the rod of Aaron. It's the first recorded time in the Bible that God ever says, this bud's for you. It's true. That's right out of the Hebrew. So, very, very famous uh, rod, this buds for you rod, that God makes the the rod of of Aaron bud. And so I think that's the one he's grabbing here. Take Aaron's rod, a reminder of last time you did this and it didn't work out real well. And God says, hey, remember, I'm the leader. I picked the leaders. And last time bad stuff happened. Let's not go there. So, take this reminder of, of the lessons from the past, the rod. And then he's talking to Moses. Now, Moses is in God's presence, but Moses probably needs a little more time in God's presence because he's still angry and he's still frustrated, understandably so. God's instructions speak to the rock before your eyes, and it will yield water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and the animals. So Moses took the rod, again, I think it's Aaron's rod that they kept in the, in the tabernacle. Before the Lord, as he commanded him. So Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly, get over here, before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck, doesn't speak, the rock twice. Here's your water with his rod. And water came out abundantly. So God honors the water being provided despite his disobedience. And the congregation and the animals drank. So Moses, in his anger, did not obey God. In his stubbornness, in his frustration. We get a lot of empathy for Moses. He's putting up an awful lot. But just because of his empathy doesn't mean it's not disobedience. It doesn't mean it's not rebellion. In fact, the word he uses, you rebels... Is the same word used in the Jewish Passover feast for the bitter herb. You mara! Mara, which means bitterness. In the book of uh, Ruth, Naomi renames herself from pleasant Naomi to mara, bitter. You bitterness! I am so bitter, I'm so angry. You've wasted so much of my time, I just can't take it anymore. Wham! Wham! And he struck the rock twice. Now, at this point, repent quickly. We've all been there. We've all lost our temper. We've all got let bitterness or frustration or annoyances. We end up doing things and acting in ways we shouldn't. We are Moses. But God is going to call him to account. And God's going to say something pretty severe here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. Now, I just told you what happened. Would your conclusion have ever been, you know what, I think Moses has a belief problem. He has an obedience problem, he's got an anger problem. Now God says he has a belief problem. And the way you handled the rock, and the way you called the people together, you did not hollow me, hallowed be thy name, in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, because of how you handled your anger, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. God calls him to go back and free the people at age 80. He's now been traveling through the wilderness from age 80 to 120. And now he doesn't get to go into the land. Oh, simply because of his inability to handle the temptation of bitterness and anger. I think many of us have struggles with our anger and bitterness. And quite frankly, we say, well, it's just something. Yeah, I do it because I'm a redhead. I do it because my dad did it. The consequences are severe. We have got to take seriously that an anger problem is really a faith problem, a belief problem. And why is it fair that God would let Moses not go in the promised land? Well, I think James says it well. He says, hey, be careful becoming a teacher or becoming a leader. God will hold you to a higher state of account. There will be a stricter judgment for leaders, for parents, for managers than just people who are followers. So, when you step into the role of leadership, just know that it comes with a higher standard of accountability. So, let me show you the point here, because it's not self-evident, but notice this idea of belief, and I want to try and tie this together, that his anger problem is really a belief problem. He says, I want you to run a lap, guys, you're going to face some consequences. Because, Moses, when you lost your temper, you really lost your faith. Like I said, this is not immediately self-evident that anger problems are really belief problems. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of dig down through some layers of when you get angry. What do you think about and what do you believe is true toward God, toward others, toward the world when you get angry? I just wrote a few down here that are beliefs that drive anger. Here's one. I believe my way is better. How many times in the back seat have you heard your kids get mad at each other, your kids get mad at each other, and they're getting mad, but what they really believe is that their way is better than the other person. That's the fuel of their anger. It's a belief problem. When you're angry at God, it's you believe your way is better than his way. You have a faith problem. Number two, I believe I shouldn't have to put up with this. I'm a good person who's done good moral things. Look at how well I've obeyed you. Look at how well I've followed the Ten Commandments. Whatever it is, your moralism and your religiosity become a belief system that God owes you and therefore you're justified in being angry at God because you shouldn't have to put up with this inefficiency, this tough season of marriage, this rebellious son or daughter because I raised them right. So really God calls you to repent of the belief system that's motivating or driving your anger problem. I don't believe God knows what he's doing. You may not say that out loud, but that's really what your heart believes. I wouldn't run life this way, and I don't believe God knows what he's doing, and I'm angry about it. I believe I have the right to judge other people. God says, no, no, I am the judge. No, 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 God, you're not the judge because you're not giving enough lightning bolts to the right people, enough mercy to the right people. I'll take it from here, God. When you believe that you're the judge and jury... And you put yourself in the place of God, you then become very self-righteous and justified in your anger because you have the right to judge. I believe God or life owes me, so I'm angry and bitter. I believe a loving God shouldn't have allowed this. I believe God's way is slow or it's short-sighted. It's not for my best. Or I believe I shouldn't be treated this way. And I could go on and on. But you see the connection here between an anger problem is really a belief problem And so when you struck the rock, it looked like just a display of emotion, but it was really a belief problem. You don't believe that I'm the one that does miracles, and you have to do my work my way. So it was a belief problem that manifested itself in anger. But Moses, you need to dig down. And even though your circumstance is understandable, and even though your reaction to what was going on was, you know, a lot, I need you to react differently and revisit your faith. I remember one time I was very, very angry. My mother-in-law had volunteered me to go and fix the roof of my uh, uncle-in-law, I guess. And I would have been delighted to help him, but you you always hate when somebody volunteers you to do something that you didn't choose to do. And then I only had three hours to go over there to fix a roof problem. And so it wasn't even the right amount of time, but I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm I'm here, but I'm I'm still kind of stewing inside. I'm doing doing the pastor thing. I would love to help. But inside, I'm like, mother-in-law, you volunteer me to do whatever you want to do. So I climb up on the ladder. I'm up on the roof. And it, there's a leak right there where the seams, almost always, right, where the seams of the roofing come in. And right in that spot, there's a leak. So I'm like, you know what? Do we have some extra? Yeah, we already got shingles. Great. So I'm just going to tear off this part and kind of weave the whole thing back together and redo it from the, from the ground up. I can't. I only have three hours. So I don't have time to do the whole roof. But I'll at least get the section weaved in so that it doesn't leak anymore. So as I climb up on the roof, I look at the first layer, and first of all, it's a hot day, right? So uh, here I am, God, serving you, serving somebody who needs help, and it's the hottest day ever up on the roof. And if you've ever roofed, you never want to roof when it's hot, and it's hot. And, and he's got this giant shade tree in the front yard, and, and the, the way the sun is moving, the shade is always three shingles ahead of me. And I am working as fast as I can and as hard as I can. And I can never quite get to the shade. I'm getting more and more angry, more and more frustrated, more and more irritated. Now, as I'm peeling back the shingles, there are 21 layers of shingles on this house. That's on this roof. I counted them. This roof that joins up with this roof has 16 layers of shingles. And I am digging through 16 layers. I took a 2-inch nail and a 3-inch screw and I went to put it through which you know, typically use a, a, a roofing nail. I pounded a 2-inch roofing nail through the shingles. I never made it to the wood. It was just shingle. And I spent all this time for two hours just trying to dig down 21 layers to get a new fresh sense of shingles in order to do this thing. And I'm just angry and mad the whole time. And as I was there yanking through all these shingles and we eventually got it done. I never got to the shade, by the way, the whole time. I just thought how much anger is like that. We just think it's I'm hot, it's bad circumstances. We don't take the time to dig through the shade and the layers of the of the beliefs we have, to find out why we get angry and why we keep getting angry and why we haven't changed our patterns. And God wants us to dig through the shingles to get to the root of the problem. Because people have been covering this problem up for 21 years or more. Just throwing another layer on. How about you? Are you willing to dig in and do the work to find out what it is? When you come to the wilderness of temptation in Moab, are you willing to dig down? Because I think the lesson for all of us is that we are all going to fail. We're all going to make mistakes like Moses did. So, in the New Testament, it references these times with Moses, and it says that we, you and I, are to learn how to drink from the spiritual rock that is Christ. To learn his way, to learn his mercy, to believe that he does know what's best, to repent, believe in, that repentance is good when we damage other people or burn things down because of our anger or emotions. Have you learned how to drink from the spiritual rock when you're running laps in the wilderness? Are you drinking from Christ when there's a gap? You're going to be my daily bread. Are you drinking from the spiritual rock that is Christ by having not your face up raising your fist at God, but your face down saying, God, I'm seeking you in the midst of this. Are you drinking from the spiritual rock and saying, God, I'm willing to do the work to dig underneath the layers of my anger to find the beliefs that have caused me to be in rebellion to you? It's interesting how the Bible references this. If you want to drink from the spiritual rock, number one, you need to agree that you deserve laps. God, I deserve the consequences here for what I've done. Not you owe me, not you shouldn't have And God, I deserve these laps. And I'm going to make this a lesson learned. I'm going to learn the lesson this time. I'm going to grow this time. See, the book of Numbers goes on here in chapter 20 and says, so they named this place the water of Meribah. So they're drinking, but it's called the water of Meribah, which literally means the water of contention. Because this is the place they contended with Israel. They burnt down their relationship with God. They, they put a circumstance in place that Moses will not end up going into the promised land because God was not hallowed or seen sacred there. So drinking from the, the rock means, number one, I agree, God, I deserve these laps. Number two, God, I agree that I thought I knew better than you, that I could hit the rock and make it work versus speak to the rock. Repent is simply that, God, I agree, I thought I knew better than you, and I'm wrong. And God, I agree that I need forgiveness, and I need mercy, and it's not deserved. Which is why in the book of Corinthians it pulls up this idea. It says, They, back in the book of Numbers, in the book of Exodus, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now it's interesting, there's two times that Moses provides water. One is from Numbers chapter 20, we just read. And that is actually this water of contention. God provided, but it was contentious. The rock that Corinthians is referencing comes from actually the book of Exodus, 17, 6 to 7, when they did trust God and God did provide and Moses did obey correctly. Are you drinking from the waters of contention or the waters of Christ when you're doing your laps? There's many, many theories as to where the uh, rock is that was provided for in Exodus. I happen to think it's in Saudi Arabia. You can look it up. It's called the Split Rock of Horeb in Saudi Arabia. It's this massive 100-foot rock that is to this day still split down the middle, or God may have split it. There's erosion marks that go out a mile long. I mean, if God's going to provide water for a million people, it need to be like a lake. This gigantic lake was formed for people to drink. There's even some, some uh, hieroglyphics of, of uh, what look like a golden calf nearby in a nearby altar. It's different opinions, but when you think of Christ as your rock, I want you to think not of this little rock or a big rock you might see in your landscaping, but a hundred foot tall source of grace, source of strength, source of forgiveness that God wants you to drink from. Admit, and I've screwed it up in my anger, I've screwed up in my faith, I've screwed up in how I handled the gaps. And then drink of the grace that God has for you to grow into the person he wants you to be. Maybe for some, some of you, you've done that before. You've, you've been drinking of it, but you never told anyone publicly. We've got a baptism service coming up, and maybe part of you drinking from that well is saying, I want other people to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not perfect, but that's the whole point. He was perfect. So we have a, a service coming up on the 21st on Saturday, and maybe you say, I've never been publicly baptized, and I want people to know I drink from the rock. And in the middle of my gaps, God's grace covers the gaps. Or maybe today, when I talk about handling your anger and learning how to repent or dig into that, you're like, I I just don't know how. I've never been taught how. I would love to help you with that. We're in a series right now for men called God's Home Info on Sunday nights and Mondays. Tonight is exactly that talk. And it's going to be how do we, as men, learn how to make repair attempts? How do we bring forgiveness into our relationships? So you can come tonight if you're a night person, or you can come tomorrow morning if you're a morning person. It's the exact same material. If you weren't here last week, that's fine. Each week stands on its own. But let's learn how to repair our relationship with others and with God. Then lastly, it's Mother's Day next week, so make sure you prioritize your mom. But also reminder that a tent is back. So for those of you watching from home on on your uh, couches, we just invite you to be part of it. And I know for many of you, you've been waiting for the tent to come back up just to make it a little safer. So we are going to have the tent available outside for watching services. So if you uh, enjoy that. If you just feel like, you know, it would be nice to be out there because, uh, Chad, you're better when I can ignore you and look at some, some um, birds or some deer, that's fine too. So whatever it is, um, we've created that tent for overflow. And if you just feel like that would be a great experience for you, I have loved watching services from the tent and worshiping out there in the middle of, of, uh, of just God's creation. So that starts next week. All right? Let's pray together. And I just ask that God would grow you, that you make every lesson and every lap a lesson learned, not time lost. Father, thank you for the way you grow us. Thank you for the way you challenge us. And thank you for the humble warning of Moses that as leaders, you hold us to higher account. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.